Production funding for Ruckus has been provided by gifts from Dave and Jamie Cummings, the Fred and Lou Hartwig family, Peter and Barbara Gattermeyer, the Courtney S. Turner Charitable Trust, John H. Mize, and Bank of America N.A. co-trustees, and by viewers like you. Thank you. Welcome to Ruckus, our weekly food for thought fight over the news of the day and the trends of the times. I'm Mike Shannon. The Ruckettes join me shortly in our topics this week. How costly is affordable housing? Can Kansas City afford all of its hotels? And what are the costs, and to whom, of the Mueller report, plus roast and toast? But we're going to start with our Newsmaker segment and meet one of the candidates for the city council in the June general election. We'll focus on the 3rd District at large race and talk with State Representative Brandon Ellington. His opponent will be my guest next week. The 3rd District is on the city's east side. The current at-large councilman from the 3rd, Quentin Lucas, is one of the two candidates for mayor. Brandon Ellington, welcome to Ruckus. Thanks for joining us. Now, how are you doing today? I'm doing quite well, thank you. Uh, you're in the state legislature. Why do you want to leave that for a potential seat on the city council? A uh, couple things. One, it'd be good to come out of the same asylum. The, <laughs> the other is proximity. So uh, since I've been in and, and you'd get into sanity on the city council? I think I would uh, being more closely connected to the constituents. I think that would bring me a lot of sanity and joy. So uh, at the state level, I work on a lot of laws and legislation that overtly benefit people that are low income or working middle class families. Uh, the issue I have is a lot of people in Kansas City doesn't pay attention to state politics. So when we look at a lot of the issues at the city level, I feel that a lot of those are addressable if we have uh, city council people that are actually connected to the community, connecting the community to uh, resources and organizations, and actually working to address the social issues, the economic issues, and they resemble a lot of the work that I do on the state level now. You're running citywide, but you come from the 3rd District, have to reside in the 3rd District to run at large. So looking at the 3rd, what are two or three of the most significant problems you hope the city council will address? Uh, well, the 3rd District is the most vulnerable district in Kansas City. So we look at violent crime, we look at lack of economic activity, when we look at tax diversification. These are some of the issues that are prominent in the 3rd District, and they resemble the citywide. So when we talk about development and infrastructure investments, when we talk about social programs and increasing tax diversification and increasing employment opportunities, the 3rd District needs it, and so does certain parts of the city. And uh, the city council is your first vanguard to actually getting that done. Uh, your city council is directly uh, tied into who's going to do development. If your city council member is active in the community, that city council member is connecting people with resources that will reduce crime. Uh, and also working on policing is something that I'm looking to do. We hear a lot of talk these days about the city and affordable housing. Mm -hmm. Is affordable housing an issue in the 3rd District? And if it is, what's the city's role in solving the problem? Affordable housing is an issue citywide. It's an issue in the 3rd District. It's an issue downtown. And the city needs to make housing a priority when we do development. And affordable housing can be tied in. So when we look at states like D.C., or, or other states that have actually made affordable housing inside of their new development a mandate, we see, we see productivity in that city. We see a city that increases the tax diversification in the city that actually works. And I think that affordable housing is one of our top priorities, and we need to stop pricing people out when we do development. 
All right, uh, Kansas Cityans just rejected a sales tax for pre-K education, and some people say that's because Kansas Cityans believe they're taxed enough. Do you think Kansas Cityans are taxed enough? Yeah, Kansas City is overtaxed. So at the state level, we have a couple pieces of legislation that actually cap sales tax at 14%. That comes directly out of the, uh, the taxing zones that we see in Kansas City and the taxing zones that we see in St. Louis. I believe that our tax tools can be beneficial, but the way that we do things here is tax and spend. So I think two things with that pre-K. I think the mayor had a bad pre-K plan first off, and I think the uh, overtaxation people are getting tired of. Uh, as you know, the city council voted to change the name of Paseo Drive, make it Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, and the signs are going up. Now a group is conducting a petition campaign to change the name back to Paseo. What do you want? I want transparency. So when we talk about the Purcell name change, we talk about a process that was altered. They didn't even hit the number of, 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 of registered people that they needed to hit. But when we talk about the whole conversation of symbolism is something that uh, has substance, I think that's what we should be targeted at. It's one thing to change the name on the street. It's another thing to create something of substance. I'll give you an example. Uh, off of 47th Street, we have a Martin Luther King Park. We could have utilized that park, brung in some type of museum or something that actually creates economic activity and also increases the, under, the culturalistic understanding. We didn't do that. Uh, just to wrap it up, do you want it called Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard or Purcell? Uh, to be honest, I have no fight in that, but I would have rather it stayed Purcell. Okay. I would have rather we focus on Martin Luther King Park if we wanted to do something symbolic, but I would rather have something of substance. Got it. Thanks for coming in. Good luck in your campaign. No, thanks. That is 3rd District Council candidate Brandon Ellington. His opponent joins us next week. Now let's meet the panel and start a ruckus! Lisa Johnston is a consultant and columnist. Crosby Kemper III is the executive director of the Kansas City Library System and the host of KCPT's Meet the Past and Centropolis programs. Marianne Murray-Simons is a freelance writer and consultant. Attorney Steve Marakian is with the firm of Warsh, Hobbs & Marakian. Steve is also Professor Emeritus at the Michael Avenatti Institute <laughs> for Legal Research and Jurisprudential Enhancement. Nice advancement for your career, Steve. Congratulations. It's going very well. <laughs> I have no doubt that it is. We, 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 you meet the most interesting people. Right. We will be entirely vindicated. So, <laughs> Talking good. with a city council candidate, as I just did, is a reminder that the upcoming election is about much more than who will be the next mayor. There are multiple issues to consider, including the much-talked-about and modestly defined affordable housing question. Individuals grapple with affordable housing questions as they decide where to live and how much they can handle in rent or mortgage payments. How does the city government get embroiled in affordable housing? Does the city have a role? And if so, what do you think it is, Marianne? Well, there are big issues in Kansas City, Missouri, as we all know, who have been here for any period of time, not the least of which is a, a healthy environment in which to raise families. And so affordable housing is all part of how we improve our community as a whole. The city's hoping to add 5,000 affordable housing units somewhere in the city, probably on the east side. And there are lots of different ways they're looking at to be able to fund that not the least of which is increasing the property tax, maybe a sales tax increase. 
There are some funds that are out there that they could pull funds from. They could start a new fund of $75 million, sort of an endowment to be able to draw from, but they don't know how they're going to fund that. Or they could go to developers of these kinds of properties and say, instead of two parking places per unit, you can do one parking place per unit if you'll assign 20% of the housing stock to the affordable housing uh, group. So it, the question is in the air as to how this will all end up, but the city is taking a very strong role. Steve, is it a legitimate function of the local government to deal with affordable housing? Well, I would say yes, it is. Housing is critically important, obviously, to a community, as Mary Ann just said, and I agree with that. Uh, I am concerned, however, I think the government's role should be extremely limited. It's very hard to draw that line. Uh, we've seen um, government housing programs for years in major cities, including Kansas City, that were complete, absolute disasters. My firm, for many years, represented uh, the Kansas City Housing Authority. And uh, you remember the projects that we had in Kansas City, Wayne Minor and others and so forth. Horrible, horrible disaster. It, it, was, it was disastrous. But to, there are people who are in great need of housing who simply can't afford it. And I don't believe that, that it, it's, it can be, it's going to be feasible to develop the housing you need without some degree of public-private partnership. But I would say I am much more in favor of the private development with incentives than I am with the public, uh, with the government well, a being involved. tax increase, Crosby, do you think anybody's going to buy a tax well, increase no. for affordable I mean, we're, housing? We're one of the highest tax cities in the United States, and we send $153 million every year of tax money to developers and corporations uh, through TIF and tax abatement. All we need to do is pull back some of that money, and we could spend it on affordable housing or fixing potholes well, or Let me ask you this. Rates. How does the city handle that? Do they just give the housing to people, or do they... Take control of the houses, no, it, charge it, it, rent. Typically, they typically they lower the rent. Is, is, mm -hmm. is, is and what subsidize the subsidize the rent. Yeah, but the city's major program in the last two city councils has been a ten million dollar plan to tear houses down. You understand, as Steve uh, has, has alluded to, three times in my adult lifetime, the federal government has stepped in and either taken over our housing authority or severely limited its activities, uh, sanctioned it, uh, its activities. We haven't paid no attention to this. I don't think there's anybody in city government today who knows anything about this or can do anything about it. So the $75 million plan, in, uh, in my view, is DOA. The voters will not vote for a tax increase and give it to the same Affordable people. housing is... Uh uh, something that would benefit only a relatively small portion of the population. Well, our, our housing, we subsidize an immense amount of housing in Kansas Already. City, and it's all for upscale luxury apartment buildings like mm -hmm. one light, two light, mm -hmm. and three light downtown. Just take the $17 million we're paying for the three light garage and put that into affordable housing and, and for, for actual poor people. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't actually subsidize housing for poor people in Kansas City. We subsidize it for rich people. I don't want to co-opt our next topic, but maybe they could put people in hotel rooms. Well, there, there are a lot of empty hotel rooms, and I think that's a great idea, Mike. Lisa, before we wrap this up, there are other topics that ought to be discussed in this campaign. What are some of them? Well, I think those things that affect people's daily lives, they want to know what 
the city government is going to do to make their lives better and the lives of those they care about, things that are right outside their front doors. So they want to see potholes fixed. They want to see the deferred maintenance taken care of. They're concerned about safety, about community policing, murder rates, and, of course, the housing we've been talking about. You know, lots of folks will point to major initiatives like the airport, but those are not really the things that affect people day to day, and they want to see impact on those day-to-day -day issues. All right, now we're going to move on to the issue I sort of brought up. Sometimes skeptics get it right. For years, local authorities have claimed that a shortage of hotel space, especially the absence of a convention hotel downtown, kept tourists and conventioneers from coming to Kansas City. So to solve the problem, often with tax incentives, the city sought and attracted new hotels. But now a Kansas City Star report based on data from Visit KC shows supply exceeding demand, something skeptics warned about. In short, Kansas City has more hotel rooms now than likely reservations, and the 800-room Lowe's Hotel downtown has yet to open. So what now? Visit KC officials believe, of course, the answer is spending more money to attract conventions and visitors to fill the empty rooms. Crosby, do you have any reservations about Ooh. that? Ouch. Ouch. <laughs> Just I, a few. I, I have no reservations about this report, which shows, I mean, I, what I want to say, I told you yeah, so. Well, I testified before the city council. The library brought Haywood Sanders, the leading analyst, academic analyst of this stuff, saying, don't do this. Uh, and, and I said, you're going to have what this show, the, the survey shows, this growing gap between uh, demand and supply uh, in, in Kansas City. And why are we doing this anyway? Th this is about creating low-wage jobs. Um, it's hugely subsidized, and now we have competing subsidies going on. So it's, it's a little bit of a, a, a joke. And the current city council and the last city council, and yes, the mayor, are responsible for this, and they should not get any more money. Kansas City is going to be around the 40th largest convention center in the United States and around the 40th largest uh, uh, tourist and, and visitor destination because that's, roughly speaking, the size of the city. Just before we move on to Marianne, I've read this three or four times, and make sure I got it right. There were more conventions in Kansas City in 2000 than there have been in any of the subsequent years. Right. Until and this was before the Sprint Center and the Power right, and Light District. Right, and our $100 million uh, uh, expansion of the Las Vegas-style ballroom of the convention center. Yeah, no, we're not growing, we're not growing conventions at all, and, and we're, we're growing room nights a little bit because of sports and performing arts. Mary Ann, is this just a temporary problem for Kansas City or a lasting one? I think it's a temporary problem, and I think the issue is around the fact that you book these conventions years in advance, and they do it based upon your inventory of rooms in a specific area, in this case, downtown Kansas City. And we really did have a problem with a lack of rooms in downtown Kansas City, so we lost the FFA. We lost Skills USA and a lot of other large conventions that have gone to other cities that had the hotel stock. We now have that in our back pocket, and Visit USA needs to go, or Visit KC needs to go out and really sell to these larger groups again to bring them back in to be able to sustain the additional. Well, presumably that's what Visit KC has been doing. Right, and they want more money to be able to do it. The question is, do they need that, or can they use the existing staff and contacts they have to be able to regenerate those old relationships? Steve, what about the homicide rate that gets reported not only locally but nationally? You think that discourages 
conventions and visitors from coming to Kansas City? I think it has a minimal effect. Uh, I, you know, our, the homicide rate clearly is a problem, and Kansas Cityans know about it. But when you compare the homicide rate to the kind of the publicity that you get to cities like Chicago and so forth, uh, it's, it's minuscule, comparatively. And yet cities like Chicago thrive in terms of tourism. People don't say, we're not going to go there for, vaca for vacation or have a convention there because there's a lot of uh, you know, homicides on the south side of Chicago. It's a horrible problem, not minimizing it, simply saying they still get their conventions. And I don't think that's the issue in Kansas City. I think there are a lot what of is other the issues. Issue? Well, I think, I, think, I think a lot of it is more uh, centered on the perception of Kansas City, which despite great strides we've made with sports teams and with arts and with theater and so forth, People still look, except in the Midwest, Nebraska and Iowa and, and so forth, people look at Kansas City as being, Kansas City, why would I go there? So when you talk about getting these national conventions, there are other places that seem to be more attractive. And I don't think we've done a great job attracting all these conventions. We but I also agree with Crosby. I don't think building more hotels is the answer. in here, uh, do you think we'll now see hotels closing? It's certainly possible. Uh, I hope not. But the question is, have they exceeded the demand so much now with the new facility that that might be the end result. But I agree wholeheartedly with what Steve was just saying. You know, when we are trying to get a convention, we are in competition with all the various locations throughout the United States. And we all live in Kansas City. We love Kansas City. But the outsider's perspective is that we don't have as much to do as some other places. We don't have as many world-class attractions. And so then it becomes is the cost-benefit analysis going to work? Right. Can we offer a, a co beneficial cost for the experience that makes us a draw? The big conventions are all subsidized. We lost the FFA because we didn't give them two, over $2 million in subsidy. <laughs> and why, would, why, why, do, why do we do this? This doesn't create economic growth in Kansas City. It's just subsidizing somebody else's businesses. They're all at, hotels are all owned out of town and operated out of town. This is, this is the dumbest uh, economic development strategy in the country. And we had Haywood Sanders, the leading expert on this, say this, and it's every member of the city council derided me and the library for, for doing that. But the result is what we've got, and it's Jones Lang LaSalle that says we're going to have this huge gap. Mary, All right, we've got to press forward. The long-awaited, much-anticipated, and perhaps exaggerated <laughs> Mueller report conclusions are at least partially known. And it appears... To some, Mueller was duller than many hoped. On the quintessential question of President Trump's alleged collusion with the Russian government to subvert the 2016 presidential election, special counsel Robert Mueller said that did not happen. Now, there are other issues and other conclusions to come, but on the basis of what we now know, what is the impact of the Mueller report on the body politic We'll do Steve and then Lisa and then get everybody else in. Well, there are several critical factors here. The impact on the body politic is it's going to be a free-for-all for now for the next 20 months or whatever until the election, uh, and it shouldn't be. Americans everywhere should be thrilled by this report, which establishes that our president did not collude, our president did not obstruct, our president did not commit any crimes. This has been established now. So all this nonsense talking about, well, is maybe there's some evidence and they might have obstructed and maybe now it's abuse of power. It's all a bunch of bull. There are four critical factors. I'll take them quickly. I know you want to move around the room, okay? The president did not collude with the Russians. 
The president did not obstruct justice. The president, the only crime that was committed was by Jim Comey and the FBI. That's three factors. I'll let them talk about the rest. All right, Lisa, uh, it seems to me before the report, back when it first began, mm -hmm. we heard from Democrats, Republicans, Robert Mueller is the guy. He's the gold standard. Right. You've got to trust him. Let's wait till the right. Mueller report comes out. Now, the Mueller report has come out, and leading Democrats are saying, we don't trust him, we don't trust the outcome. And it's largely, I think, due to the fact that they were hoping for something in there that would allow them to pursue uh, some kind of line of attack on the president and possibly move forward with impeachment. And, of course, that's still being talked about. But I think that Democrats need to proceed extraordinarily carefully here. And Steve is exactly right. It's going to be a free-for-all. Everybody's going to dig into the minutia of all the language and say, oh, but look on page 200 in this paragraph, it says this and this. And, th and that's going to happen, and we need to be prepared for that. But ultimately, people know what the top-line conclusions are at this point. And I think it's highly unlikely. People have criticized Barr, and now it seems that Mueller is going to testify, and we'll see if he contradicts anything that Barr has said. But let's not forget, Mueller has not been shy. When something has come out that was factually incorrect, like the BuzzFeed report earlier in the year, he came out and said, no, this is wrong. It's not from our team. So I think if, if the summary had been improper, he would have said something. Crosby, uh, way in. I, I have a copy of the Mueller report right here, and I wanted to know about the rumors about Mike Shannon in the report. <laughs> have they been confirmed? And here's the page. It's entirely redacted. Entirely Shannon redacted. Unmasked. I was stunned. I listened uh, to I would point out that, that Shannon is a Russian name. It right. is. The I-N ending. Collusion. Like Lenin, Stalin, I listened to NPR this morning about this, and I have never heard so much heat and so little light in my entire life. Let's wait until everybody gets a chance to read it. And Mueller, Barr said Mueller can testify sure. before Congress, so he'll mm -hmm. testify. And, Why do we wait and, for that? Yeah, I, th I think people forgot, too, that Barr and his initial analysis said, I have met with Mueller and his mm -hmm. staff, and we came together and prepared this document. Are you distrustful of it, Marianne? I want to read it. I want to see what has been redacted, what is the continuing investigation that's going on. But I think Chris Wallace said it best. His comment in listening to the Attorney General's news conference this morning that preceded the document going to Congress and becoming public was, gosh, it sounds like he's kind of a defense attorney for the president. He's kind of representing the president rather than representing the people. I thought yeah. that was kind well, of a telling and that, well, I, But it's, and, 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 and his nonsense. report, it's and, not Mueller's report, yeah, and, it's and, really and, the attorney And, and I heard that same comment, and it was nonsense. And, he, and I want to, I'll make this very quick, okay? I'm the only lawyer in this panel, unless Lisa is, maybe no, I can't I'm recall. Not. Okay, okay. This, this, and these are this, also good people in many other respects. These are these, these are these are very smart people, a lot smarter than me. Okay, uh, but here's what it comes down to. Okay, this nonsense about obstruction and and the idea of well, he really wasn't he really wasn't cleared. Okay, we have a system of justice which is unique in the world with the idea that people are presumed innocent, and if the prosecutor comes out and says, I don't even have enough evidence to charge you then we got to get over this nonsense of, well, you still might be guilty of something. This is bogus. And for Chris Wallace to come out and blame the attorney general for doing what an attorney general would do, which is saying, I've read this, 
And this, there is not enough here to even charge for obstruction. And then Wallace says, well, it sounds like a defense attorney. He's doing exactly what a prosecutor should do, which is evaluate fairly and decide whether or not to charge. The power to accuse is the power to destroy, and it should never be abused. I have the power to stop the discussion, <laughs> as much as I hate to. I have to go to the soapbox now for roast and toast. Keep rolling that teleprompter, if you would. Where are the Ruckheads have 30 seconds each to agitate, contemplate, or obfuscate? And up first is Crosby. So I'd like to toast the 15th anniversary of the Central Library, uh, which we're celebrating tonight with Vartan Gregorian, who 17 years ago uh, gave a great speech called Libraries as Acts of Civic Renewal. And I'd like to toast particularly my cousin Jonathan Kemper, the late great Phil Kirk, Olivia Dorsey, John Laney, and the others who made the Central Library happen, and particularly to the great uh, Vartan Gregorian, who's come back to celebrate with us. Great Steve Marakian. If you missed Eric Swallow's announcement that he's running for president, so did almost everyone else. This guy is not only crazy, he's dangerous. Swalwell has not only proposed jailing people for lawfully owning firearms, but he is now one of a select group, including himself, Adam Schiff, and Maxine Water, who, despite Mueller's two-year investigation, still proclaim that Trump is literally a Russian agent. So what do black holes and Swalwell's brain have in common? Black holes are devoid of matter, and Swalwell's brain is devoid of any thoughts that matter. Another mad hatter who wants to drive the crazy train. Lisa. My roast is for establishment Democratic insiders who, according to a New York Times article, are discussing organizing an effort to attack Bernie Sanders because he's doing too well. Other candidates can't <laughs> win a general election unless they can beat Bernie on their merits. And resurrecting nasty, underhanded tactics like some of those we saw in 2016 against Bertie will only further fracture the party and may pave the way for another Trump victory. Marianne. I have a heartfelt toast to Mindy Corcoran and the annual Seven Days event that concluded this week in Kansas City. It was founded in honor of her father, her son, and Terry Lamano, who were killed by a white supremacist five years ago. The event really is about looking at how we're more alike as a uh, community than we are different and ending the divisiveness in our community that has led to lots of problems, political and otherwise, in our country. I hope we all take that message to heart. And finally, here is a toast to probably the wittiest senator in Washington, John Kennedy, Republican of Louisiana. Asked the other day by a reporter about congressional inactivity, Kennedy replied, doing nothing is hard. You never know when you're finished. <laughs> well, we're finished. That's Ruckus for this week. We're back next Thursday at 7. Now for the Ruckets and the crew, happy Passover, happy Easter. Thanks for watching, and good night.